0: Almost a year ago, uh, to the to the month, uh, we. Uh, heard of a case of a young baby on the Turkish coast. Uh, her parents had gone uh, out for the day to kind of sunbathe in, uh, along the beach, and uh, they're sitting there and they're sunbathing, and they took uh, their 10-month-old daughter and they put her in a canary yellow floaty, uh, simply just to kind of float nearby. Well, uh, as they were sunbathing and had their eyes closed, the young little daughter just began to kind of uh, drift off. And with the northern wind that picked up and the undertow that was taking place off the beach uh, in Turkey, uh, it wasn't too long before spectators began to yell. And they began to look, and there off in the distance, almost 300 yards off the coast, was this canary yellow floaty by itself. People began to swim, and of course, mom and dad began to take off after it as well, but it was so far out that all their hopes were simply in vain. So they call up the Coast Guard, and by the time the Coast Guard had gotten there, that canary yellow little floaty had drifted so far off the coast that it was almost a kilometer out from the original place that it set in the water. Now, I tell you that simply because um, we have simply uh, seen many times in uh, our culture things that happen right before our parents' eyes, right? A Drifting off. The Cincinnati Zoo, if you remember just a few weeks ago. But I want you to know that drifting is something that can easily happen. That it doesn't take a whole lot of effort and it happens when you and I simply aren't paying attention to what we're supposed to be doing. The writer of Hebrews is writing to this group of believers who uh, were once hesed loyal Jews but have claimed to put their faith in Jesus, but they're stumbling mightily on some of the things that the writer of Hebrews claims about Jesus. His perfect life, the fact that he died for them, that he is the substitute for their sins, that he was perfect in every way, that he indeed was higher than the angelic realm, that he wasn't a created being, but he was there in creation, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so if you look at this idea that the writer of Hebrews is trying to establish in chapter 1, in chapter 2 he says, now let's not drift from that. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And in verse 1 it simply says, therefore. And any time that you see therefore it means that you must look backwards. And so we look back to chapter 1 and what we saw in chapter 1 is that the Jews had no problem believing in an Old Testament God who spoke in many times and different ways through miracles and dreams and visions and even through creation, but they began to stumble mightily on this person of Jesus, this God-man who came in the flesh, who said, to look at me is to see God. John chapter 14, verse 9. And so here it is, Jesus making this boasterous claims uh, in his ministry and in his life. And the writer of Hebrews, although unknown, says, I agree with Jesus. I agree with his claims. I agree with all the things that the Scriptures point to. And so he says to his readers, to his audience, Therefore, since I agree with all that I've shared with you already in chapter 1, all that the prophets spoke about, all that Paul has spoken about, all that the New Testament church has believed in. He says, therefore, you must pay closer attention to what you've heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to look at this fixed point of truth so we don't look up one day and we have wondered from where it was that we were supposed to be. And so he says, here it is. This is the truth. Pay close attention to it. And then he outlines what it is that we should be looking at in addition to what he's already spoken of. And so in verse two, he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape or neglect such a great salvation? And so in uh, chapter two, verse two, he says, you need to understand that you have already believed that this message that was proclaimed, and he's saying that it was proved to be reliable through the angels. He's not speaking that the angels gave a message, but what you do need to know that is that Mount Sinai, when God came and he gave the message of the law to Moses, you see many different inferences in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, is the laws being given, that the angelic realm, the multitude of them, was present. And that the angels play special, special part in some of the messages that God gives to his people. And we remember from last week that the angels are not meant to be the Messiah of God, but they're simply messengers for God. And so Jesus is the Messiah of God, and yet we see that the angels do play a part in the ministry of reconciliation on behalf of God's people. And so he's writing to this group of of Hebrew believers, and he simply says, I know that you have regarded angels to be of high standing. And he said, And we also know that they helped bring part of the law to the people of, of Israel. And so he goes, I'll give you that. But he says, You need to know why the law was given and why they even played a part. And he said, And it's so that the message is proved reliable, because the message that is reliable, therefore the law is so what? Every transgression or mistake or sin or any decision that you make has a what? D- disobedience received and it has a just retribution. So what he's simply saying is this, we have no problem saying here in our church, that because, what, we sin, we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We also know that Romans 6.23, just a few chapters over from Paul's writing in chapter 3, says that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we know that our sin receives a just retribution. You understand? But the people of Israel struggled mightily with that. They believed that because they were the people of God, that because he had established himself by calling them as a nation, ultimately giving them land, promise, blessings, descendants, bringing them out of captivity in Egypt over 400 years, that they were his people. And that was true. But they forgot that their sin patterns actually caused a division between them and God. And so they had the law imparted to them. And see, so many people think the law is not a means of a just retribution, but a means of of, uh, acquiring a relationship with God and getting to God on behalf of good works and good decisions. But what we see is is that the law now is good, as what Paul says to his, his brother Timothy. He goes, the law is good if one uses it properly. So the law is not good if you don't use it properly. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that the writer is riding here that every disobedience would receive a just retribution? What does that even mean? Well, it simply means this. That because we fall short of the glory of God and that we are sinners, that we deserve to be separated from God forever. Now, that is a real challenging thought because many of us in this room, we go, Brandon, but I, I am not that bad. I like, I, I've got a good heart. I'm a, I'm a good person. And then, of course, you see that the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, no, no you don't. Our heart is, is sick and above all else, it is deceitful. And so we don't have a good heart. In our humanity and in our flesh, we are immoral, wicked people who oftentimes, what, spit in the face of God. And we look at ourselves and we go, I'm not that bad. And we're not that bad in comparison to who? Someone around us, right? But what the writer of Hebrews says is, no, you need to understand that your heart is sick, that your life is full of sin... And that because you fall short of the glory of God, then you need to know that you're going to receive a just retribution. That there is a punishment that you deserve because of your sin. And it's a just punishment. You go, what do you mean? That doesn't seem fair. You mean to tell me that a loving, merciful God would ban me to hell because I can't live up to a code? Well, what the scripture says is this. The code is not meant to be lived up to. If the law is used properly, here's what the code is. The code is to let you know. The law is to let you know that you fall short. The whole reason that a stop sign is there is so that you don't run it. The entire reason that as you're driving down Highway 80 to Edgewood that you'll see speed limit signs as you go is simply to remind you that there is a law that is governing you. And when you go above that law, when you drive a 75 and a 70, then you could receive a just retribution. You may not, but you could. And they may give you grace. If you're driving through a school zone with a cell phone up to your ear and you go through it and a police officer pulls you over, you're going to get a just retribution. If it happens to be the case, on that day it's his birthday and he's feeling really nice and he comes up and he knocks on your window and says, you know what, today I'm going to let you have a free pass it's my birthday, then it means you did not receive a just retribution. You got grace. And let me tell you, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, when you receive grace, you don't continue to sin that grace may increase. So you're not going to go through a school zone or a, a speed trap again the next day and do the same things over again. Why? Because you understand the just retribution that you deserve and if you get a free pass, you don't continue to sin that grace may increase. But the bottom line is, because of your disobedience, my disobedience, because we're sinners, we deserve a just retribution. Do you understand? And the law is there not so that you can abide by it, but to remind you that you always fall short. So Paul writes to his brother Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8, and he says, the law is there for the wicked, the immoral, the greedy, the slanderer, it's there for those that are sinners. Do you understand? That's what the law is there for. It's not a code in which you can live by. You'll never live up to God's perfect standard. So let me ask you a question, okay? I need a audience participation. If you were in here today and you would say at some point in your life you have fallen short of God's perfect law, okay? Maybe you just sinned once, but you fell short of God's perfect law, okay? Would you just raise your hand? Now, if you don't, I'm gonna call you up here and you're gonna get to like, teach the rest of the, Okay? So every single one of us could say, yes, I've fallen short. Now listen, because you agreed that you've fallen short and you have sinned at least once in your lifetime, the just retribution is a lifetime and an eternity away from God. That is the just punishment. That is what is fair. As a matter of fact, in verse 3, and it says, And how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what the writer is saying is, is that there was a message proclaimed by God. The angels are there cheering him along. He imparts law and instruction to the people of Israel. That law is to help them see their transgression and their disobedience, that they fall short. But he says, you don't have to abide by that. There could be a salvation, so don't neglect it, is what he's saying. So he's saying, this doesn't have to be the way. There can be a new way. That's exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 14, verse 6. That's what he says, when I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. He is simply saying there is a way. There is hope and there is salvation. There is a new path. But it's not by your own works and merit. And so if you believe that somehow you're going to get to God on your own, then he's saying you're wrong. Why? Because sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. In heaven, in eternity, there is no sin. God has never sinned. Jesus never sinned. And so let me tell you, why would he let you in? It doesn't make sense that God would create this incredible place for eternity, for the life of the believer, only to let you in and ruin it with your sin. So he says, it's important that you not neglect your salvation or his salvation. And how did how do you neglect it? Well, the word neglect is the Greek word uh, amelio. And it's the picture in Matthew chapter 22. There's a king and the king says, my son is getting married and I want to invite people to the wedding feast. And so the king looks at his servants. He says, I want you to go out into the streets. I want you to go get the people and I want you to bring them in. And they go out and they send an invitation, and the people say, "No, we're busy. We got too many things going on." And so the servant comes back to the king, and the, the servant says, "King, they said that they're they're too busy. That they're they're going to neglect the invitation." And it's in, it's imperative that you note know that that idea of a was is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. One of them's in Hebrews, and another one's in Matthew chapter twenty-two, when. The servants were sent out by the king to offer an invitation, and the invitation was declined. Amelio. It was a cognitive decision to say, No, I'm not going to take the invitation of the king, I'm not going to the wedding feast. And so the king then goes to the servant. He goes, I want you to go out and extend the invitation one more time. Go tell them that that we're going to have lots of food, and there's going to be a great feast, and there's going to be celebration, and we're going to have fellowship. My son is getting married, and the servants go out. And guess what? The wicked people in the streets killed the servants. And so the king was enraged. And he sent out servants to annihilate them, and he says, "And I don't want you to go beyond there, and I don't want you to go get anyone that will come." And there were both good and evil people, and they came, and they were a part of that great wedding feast. But I want you to understand that the picture here that the writer of Hebrews is saying is, "Hey, you and I can neglect the salvation. You and I have a choice, and we can decline the offer if we would like." But you need to know that it is a It's a decision that you and I make. And so I want you to understand something real quickly. There are three types of people in this very room. There are some of us in here that we would say, you mean to tell me that a holy God would banish me to hell because I don't live up to this moral code? I mentioned that just a second ago. And some of you are like, I'm not going to put my belief in a God that would send me to hell. What have I done? There's that person in here. There's another person that you look at the law as something to obey. And so you constantly drive down the street and you never break a rule. You're a rule follower. And when your friends get a ticket, you go, I don't speed. I do not break the rules. I am a moral, upright person. I obey the laws of the land and I love God. And so I keep all of his laws. And let me tell you something. Both people are both wrong. Because the the idea of the law is not to drive you further away thus you drift from the truth. And the idea of the law is not to pull you in thinking that somehow, some way you can uphold it. So the idea of the law so that you don't neglect such a great salvation is to simply remind you that yes, you constantly break God's law. Yes, you constantly fall short but there is a great salvation and his name is Jesus. Now look. What the, the writer says and what he does is amazing here in verses really 3b all the way through 4. He's going to wrap up all of history right here in about a sentence and a half. Look at it. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, meaning the Old Testament. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, meaning those who God had spoke to in many different times and many different ways, through miracles and dreams and visions and burning bushes. Those were the people who what? Gave us an idea of what God was doing. It was those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. How did he do that? Through the life of Jesus. And so he goes, I spoke to you in the past. I gave you Jesus. And then what did Jesus say in John? He said, and it's best that one day I go away and send a more suitable help for you. Well, look what happens. And then after Jesus, by various wonders and gifts, he says, I give you the gift of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That is his people, the church. Look at that. The whole idea of history. We could pray right there. Be done. God loves you so much that he does not want you to neglect such a great salvation in which he did what? He revealed himself to the prophets of old. He says, I'm going to speak through them. And then in verse uh, or chapter 1, he says, and not just through prophets of old, but I'm going to give you what? The final culmination with full authority. Jesus And then Jesus says, and if you have not seen God through me, and he says, let me tell you, I'm not going to leave you here alone, simply to drift by yourself without parents. I'm going to give you what? The Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to understand this. The Old Testament truth always came in fragments. There was never one prophet that got everything. It was in successive acts. It was as if every single one of the patriarchs had one piece of the puzzle. It was this incredible mystery, this mistheron. And each one of them had a part, a piece of the puzzle. And it was as if when Isaiah spoke or Jeremiah spoke or when Micah spoke or Amos spoke or any of these prophets of old, even people like Moses, they all brought a piece of the puzzle. And as the pieces began to stack together, there was finally this picture of who? Jesus. And Jesus says, I am all that the prophets have spoken about. Heed this word. I am the great salvation. I am life. I am truth. I am the way. Don't neglect that. Why? Because you see that all the scriptures, although in fragments in the Old Testament, have revealed one thing, and that is Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus says, what you do with me matters. Hence the question we asked last week. Are you stumbling on Jesus or are you standing on Jesus? What you do with Jesus really does matter. And in verse 5 through 9, he says, here's why. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Meaning, he says, God could have given authority to several different people, I suppose. But he says, I chose to give it to what? My son in whom is me. The, the Father simply gives to the Son. And in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's order, there is unity, there is diversity. It is the picture of the church, it is the picture of marriage. And he says, and I give full authority to my son Jesus, who what? Goes, and he says, and he proclaims, and get this, the writer says, and the angels didn't get that right. Why? Because the creation can never speak as if they were the creator. Jesus gets this right, this role, because he is the creator. In chapter one of this book, Hebrews one, in Colossians one, we see that Jesus is the one who makes all things visible and invisible. All things are made by him and through him, for him. And so he's the reason that God has given him authority. Angels didn't get that right. Then in verse six, and it says, it has been testified somewhere and then what the writer of Hebrews does, he goes back and he grabs Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and he's going to quote a Psalm of David. And David is pondering all the things. He looks and he sees the heavens. He sees the stars in the sky. And can you imagine if you're laying out in the middle of a pasture on a blanket, and you're looking up, and you go, God, how vast is this universe? How big is this? And it calls David to ask the same question that many of you would ask as we're looking at the stars what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God, I am so small and you are so great. God, how do you even care for me? God, you 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 love me? God, I am that important to you. And see, as we go through the motions of sometimes what we believe is meaningless life, Solomon, right? you and I need to know that there's nothing meaningless because Jesus established you as creation in his image for the role of being reconnected with the Father through his son Jesus who provides a great salvation. Don't miss it. Don't neglect it. Don't turn it down. Don't get caught up so much in you and who you believe you are that you curse a God who loves you away. Because I'll tell you that you and I need to wrap our minds around this, that God, what am I that you would be mindful of me, that you would care for me? And then he goes on and he quotes a little bit more, that you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now you look at that and you wonder, what does that really mean? Like, what am I supposed to get from that? Well, here's what I want you to know. That there has never been a point in in all of creation and all all of the, the life that Jesus led, that he was ever by authority lower than the angelic realm. Even while people spit and curse him on the cross, while they say, hey, if you are truly who you say you are, come down off this cross. Jesus could have fully done that. He had all the power of God wrapped up in the form of human flesh, but he chose to be obedient to the Father and his will rather than subject his enemies to the wrath of himself. And so in his obedience, he stayed humbly on the cross. And in that way, he subjected himself as lower than the angelic realm. Why? Because he, as the writer of Philippians 2 says, he didn't consider something to what? Equality with God to be grasped. So meaning that even though Jesus is fully God, he didn't use that as the trump card. He didn't have the ace card sitting in his pocket only to throw it out in the middle of the game. Jesus says, no, I'm going to subject myself to the Father's will and I'm going to stay humble. And in that way, he subjects himself, why? Lower than the angels, how? Well, why? Because he loved you. And lower than the angels, how? Why? Because he left his place at the Father's side simply to enter into space and time to live among a sinful people only to make them right with God again. And so the only reason that Jesus came was not so that Thousands of years later, people could say he was such a great prophet. He was such a good teacher. It's not so that he could fill the history books or so that he could challenge the assumptions of millions. It was simply to make things right that had been broken. And he does that because he subjects himself. Look at, if you have time with me, um, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 9. I just want to read them real quickly. I don't have a lot of time um, to Spend on these, but I want you to to write this down. If you have a Bible, I want you to circle all of that passage we've read all the way to verse nine, and then I want you to make you a little note, a huge asterisk, a highlight, something that points you back to Philippians two, verse one, and nine. So, if there be any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, or any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he says, a great challenge for all of us here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why do we do that? Because we try to have the same attitude as Christ. The reason that you are to forgive other people is because God has forgiven you much. The reason that you love others is because what 1 John says is what? Because he has first loved us. So the reason that we display love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and humility is all because that's what Jesus displayed while he subjected himself as lower than the angels for a time to come and live among sinful people. That's the attributes of God. Do you see what he did? He left his right hand to the Father, preeminent position, authority, authority, All of those things simply to come and live among us. And so he says, we should, as the church, do nothing out of self-intubition, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Now let us each look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, catch, catch this, Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He poured himself out, right? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Born there is a title, not an actual inference. He was not born of flesh, but born of spirit. Understand? Because if he's born of flesh, then you and I are doomed to live our life on our own. He's born of spirit. And what? He empties himself, takes the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The reason that you and I gather here is because what? What Christ has done. He lowered himself, subjected himself so that while you and I are the what sinners, he would be exalted and he would have the crown of glory and honor and he would put everything under the subjection of his feet. So all things come under his subjection. Now, look what the writer of Hebrews says in the latter part of verse eight. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The idea of this is, is to see, look what God has done. He established himself through Jesus. Jesus came for a time, subjected subjected himself as lower than the angels. He lived among us, did not consider himself, although he was God in the flesh, as something to be grasped. He didn't do anything that he shouldn't have done. He was completely obedient to the Father. And in this, listen, he says, even then you see and you know all these things about Jesus. We still cannot comprehend What all is under subjection to him? Like you and I just can't wrap our minds around it. Our finite minds cannot understand an infinite and holy God, all in Jesus. But verse nine says, but now we see him for what? A little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And there's an inference again. You see that crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews is simply writing to this people who struggle to believe and they, they are hearing these words. They are getting these instructions and this is what they should hear. You are guilty in your sin. There is a great salvation lest you neglect it. And it's all been paid through suffering and death in Jesus. And so I think I need to just kind of put this out there for you. If you want a life that's fair, then you need to know that you're going to receive a just retribution. Like the punishment that is due to you and I because of our sin is an eternity separated from God. And it's unfortunately in a place where there is much sorrow and misery and there is hurting. And you believe that this world right now is bad? then we know that the lake of fire one day to come will be worse. That hell will not only be pure misery, but it will be all the things that you and I have yet to see here escalated. And most importantly, it is an eternity away from a holy God. But he says, if you pay attention and you don't neglect such a great salvation, then he says, just as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, then guess what? The resurrection is not in vain. Your faith is not in futile. You will see loved ones again. And more importantly, death will be swallowed up. The sting of death will be overcome with victory. And how does that happen? It happens because of this perfect salvation through Jesus. And so in verse 10, it goes on, For it was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by all things exist, a reminder of chapter 1, the very one who created all things, he brings many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So because of Jesus' suffering, you now have life with God for all eternity. And listen, this isn't something that the writer of Hebrews came up with. It was something that Isaiah wrote about. It was something that the, the Hebrew believers should not have missed because Isaiah 53 is packed full of all the things that are there. Isaiah said in chapter 53 that he was Jesus is going to be led, what, led like a lamb before his slaughters The sheep silent before his shears. But look at verse 10, what it says. Um, or actually, don't look at it, just listen to it. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What? It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, his son. He has put him to grief and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Jesus stands in the gap and all of the weight of sin, all of the Miserable things that you and I have done, all the burdens of our life have been placed on Calvary upon one man named Jesus, who is fully God, which brings everything in the Garden of Gethsemane into perspective when Jesus sweats blood, blood droplets out of his, his head, and he says, Lord, may there be any way that this cup could pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. Do you understand the grief and the agony of our sin? And Jesus takes it all. He conquers the sting of death, and he fulfills the punishment, the just retribution that you and I deserve. Praise God. Quick note. Men, if you don't sing on Sunday mornings, you clearly do not understand this principle. I will say that one more time, and I'm going to challenge everything. <laughs> you don't know me. No, no, no. I want you to understand this. Men, if you don't sing on a Sunday morning because you think you're too cool or you're like, I just don't do that, let me, let me explain that. Like I need you to know Like you don't understand the full weight of this because how do you not sing to a God who has paid your just retribution? In verse 11 and following, I'm going to fly through it because I want you to just see it. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Look here. Do you see what the just retribution paid by Jesus means that we have a great elder brother? His name is Jesus. If you're an older brother, you remember taking up for your kid sibling. Yes? No one could pick on him. You could pick on him, but no one else could pick on him. They didn't talk about your brother, and they didn't talk about your mother, right? (laughs) And Jesus, because of this great salvation which he's provided, says, I am pleased to call you my brothers. We are the family of God. We are his siblings, And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You see this? We're the family of God. Like, this is an incredibly awesome thing. And so growing up in church, if you did grow up in church, and I realize there's many of us in here that did not, but you remember those awkward times at the very end of the sermon and the song minister would get up and he would go, okay, everybody grab hands and we're going to sing the family of God. Y'all remember that? Yes? Yeah. We may have to do that to y'all one week just to make it awkward. It simply means that we are God's sons and we are the siblings. He, we have a true elder brother who has paved the way. We are the family of God. Verse 14, since then we are the family of God. The children share in flesh and blood The idea of that is flesh and blood. Anytime you see flesh and blood in the scriptures, it means that you are a sinner. You and I share in sin. Do you understand that? That's what it means. And he himself, Jesus, has likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all things through whom fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the picture. You and I We have sin and death. We um, truly have this picture of sin taking place in our life, and Jesus likewise partook. He drank of the same cup. Here's the best picture, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So we know that Jesus was not a sinner, because Hebrews chapter 4, when we get to it in a couple of weeks, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. And so Jesus without sin, he fully understood what we were going through, yet he laid his life down for his brothers so that we would not have to taste the sting of death or be a part of lifelong slavery or an eternity of darkness and dominion over us. He paved the way. You understand? Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of, angel, uh, of Abraham. The goal is this. God did not come in the form of flesh simply to make the angelic realm right. Matter of fact, we see from Peter that even the angels long to look into things that you and I now know about salvation. As I mentioned last week, they never got a second chance. Their fall never received, what? An offer to, of repentance. Your and I fall, our sin, re, what? Receives Not only a just retribution, but an opportunity to have what? Forgiveness and freedom from lifelong slavery. It comes in the form of Jesus, and it's offered to the offspring of God, the offspring of Abraham, humanity that would recognize God and repent from the error of their ways. And then verse 17, And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus was made like us so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big word for substitute, a transfer that takes place. He takes on your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Do you see this incredibly awesome offer that Jesus gives He takes your filth, your sin, your condemnation. He goes, hey, I'll bear the brunt of it on Calvary and I'll give you life everlasting. I'll give you hope and peace and love and joy and patience and provision and blessing. And I'll call you the sons and the daughters of God and the brothers, the siblings of Jesus. And I will not leave you out in this life of this incredible abyss but I'll impart to you truth through the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in your life until eternity sees you home. And for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so let me explain something. James says, when someone is tempted, you need to know that it does not come from God. First Corinthians 10, 13, you need to know that when you are tempted that God will always care for you. He'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear and more than that, he'll provide a way of escape. And so get this, as a believer, you and I cannot continually go back to the lifestyle and the patterns of our sin, simply saying it's okay. Why? Because if you are indeed a believer of God, if you're a son or a daughter of the king, if you are a sibling of Jesus, then get this, you don't get to live the life that you wanna live. You have to look like the family of God. He should change your language. He should change your actions. He should change your thought process. He should change the way you run your business. He should change the way you interact with with people. He should say, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a peasant. You need to begin to look like the child of a king. And you need to know that that doesn't happen on your own merit. It happens simply because of God's providential grace in your life. Understand? And so he says, pay close attention. And as we mentioned last week, I want to put it for you up on the screen just so you remember, are you you stumbling on Jesus or are you standing on Jesus? Are you stumbling on him or are you standing on him? Meaning, is Jesus your salvation is he your hope or are you trying to get to god on behalf of your own merit you won't get there he's your hope he is your merit let me put it to you a way that you can understand with chapter two something that is your tuesday takeaway so something that you talk about obviously you could sum it all up in chapter one and two that jesus is greater that's awesome but let me ask you this are you anchored or are you drifting A child on the coast drifts away from her parents. And let me tell you, it doesn't take much time for it to happen. It took no effort from the parents or the baby. It just happens. To to be anchored means that you have to, what? Make clear decisions. To be anchored means that I choose not to drift. You don't drift when you pay close attention to God's instruction, to his people, to his word, and to his spirit. When you neglect those things and the great salvation that God has offered, let me tell you, drifting happens quickly and easily without very little effort. Does it surprise me when people show up to my office and say, man, Brandon, I've backslidden, or the better words, man, I've drifted. And I go, well, let me ask you a question. Have you been connected to God's people? No. Have you been connected to God's word daily? No. Have you just been walking in the spirit? No, 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 no. So are you just kind of wandering like through life trying to do things the best you can? Yeah. Do you see how drifting happens? Without much thought. To be anchored, to be steadfast, to stand on the solid rock of Jesus takes what? Choice after choice after choice of obeying God's word, listening and heeding the instruction of his people, and what banking on his spirit. Let me just close with this. Back when I was a kid, um, it was almost every summer, every other summer, that my family would return back to where my parents were from. My dad and my mom grew up in Lake Jackson and Clute area, and we would go back. That was where my dad's parents were from, and um, that's where my dad's sister and some other family still lives, and so it was an opportunity for us to go back, and every single time that we'd go back, we always, for about a week, would rent a beach house at Surfside Beach, ugly Texas beach with seaweed, but uh, it was an opportunity for us to have great family time. I remember even as a kid that we would go out, and every single time we would stop at at Bucky's before Bucky's was famous, and we would go in and we'd buy these cheap inner tubes that cost 99 cents. We'd blow them up, and, and we knew that we could just leave them or throw them in the trash and we were done. But we would drift out into the water. And I remember as a kid, we would drift, and every single time my mom would go, Don't go too far! Don't go too far! And she was of no assurance because even though she grew up on the beach herself, she never knew how to swim. and So she wasn't going to save me. (laughs) And so I always tried to heed that instruction. But one day, me and my brothers, I mean, we we flip into these tubes, and sure enough, we begin to drift. And after about 10 minutes, I look up, and I, I see my mom and my dad on the beach way down in the distance. And I start kind of questioning myself, like, are they are they going back to the beach house? Did, the, did they move? And then I, I think well maybe they'll come back here in just a few minutes and I drift on a little bit more and here it is before too long they are out of sight and as a young boy I'm like why in the world what, what in the world has happened like are they just going to leave me here are they going to just let us drift away. And so I get my inner tube and I run back to the point in which I believe they should be and they're not there. And i I look around and none of our stuff is there. And so I start heading back and I'm like, oh, wait a second, I don't recognize where I am. Like this beach house that I see in front of me doesn't look like the beach house. And so I frantically with my brothers, what do we do? We start heading back towards down the beach and we're like, we're only to, after what? Hundreds and hundreds of yards of walking, we see my parents sitting on the beach. And what's the question? Why did y'all move? (laughs) We didn't move. You didn't move. No, you drifted away. And that's when I became familiar with a Texas undertow. (laughs) And I'll tell you that drifting away is sure to happen when you don't pay very close attention to the fixed point of truth. God has spoken to us through creation, through dreams and visions of the old, but he says, now I've spoken fully with full authority and finally through Jesus. Pay close attention. Don't neglect such a great salvation. And by the way, when you have salvation, don't drift from the word, his people, and the Holy Spirit. And church... The reason that our churches have become what they are is because we have many people in here proclaiming to know God and his great salvation. And yet they pay very, very little attention to his word, his instructions, his commands, and his decrees. They spend very little time with God's people obeying his voice and listening to his Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, that is not what the family of God looks like. Please hear and heed these instructions. That's not what the family of God looks like. And so I question and ask you this one more time. Are you anchored or are you drifting? Jesus is our great salvation. Pay close attention lest you drift from it. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the word that you've established for us through this incredible book called Hebrews. And Father, I pray, though, as we read through it, it can be a little bit daunting, a little bit difficult to understand upon first reading. I pray that we would desire to dig in. I pray that we would desire to know more about you and your son. I pray that we would know the law is not there for us to abide by, but simply to remind us that we fall short of the Glory of God. I pray that we know that if we neglect such a great salvation in Jesus, by grace, through faith, that we've been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast, then we're going to miss it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not miss it, but we would simply look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we would fix our eyes on you and we would not drift away because we simply get lazy in our faith. I pray we would not drift away because it's what we know to be comfortable or easy. But Lord, we would stand anchored and firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ that we would know that you are the solid rock in which we stand on. So God, help us to live for you, to love, love you, and to be connected to you and your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.